Where next? Well, that's a good question. Um, we are running out of data. <laughs> we are genuinely running out of data. Today we're going to talk about AI with Brian. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Brian Chung. I'm a data scientist from Singapore, and I'm currently working in San Francisco. I previously worked in AI and, in mater and materials, and I'm now working in AI and revenue forecasting, but I'm happy to talk about other things as well. And we have Zhang live from Twitter headquarters, day five, five days into Elon's reign. Uh, Brian, where should we start? We should start with uh, what is being done in terms of the AI. I, you had two artists before, or two sort of like art adjacent talks about uh, the about what AI has impact on them. But you know, it's it's not about just the artist. It's about sort of what you can do with the technology that is available now. So uh, Dali just came out in October. Stable Diffusion came out just two weeks after that. Uh, sorry, uh, and and. Um, now there's a. I've just met with a startup that uh, is using stable diffusion to create automatic labels for farmers in India to market their uh, to market their products uh, to 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 uh, richer countries because these are small little landholding farmers who will never be able to hire a designer, never know what marketing looks like uh, in in America or in Europe or in Singapore, and uh, they don't know how to sell their products and have a little bit of a upmarket value. And so now, if you just have a little website, uh, you bring it to them and say, just type in turmeric and whatever, and out comes the label. It belongs to you. You can print it. You can put it on your packaging. And it like 80% can compete with that of a professionally made like designer. And, and so these are farmers that are earning $2 a day, $2 US dollars a day, and they're able to, to sell their goods to uh, countries with higher purchasing powers. So this is with technology that's already available now. A lot of people are talking about, you know, uh, general AI, um, uh, AGM, uh, uh, artificial general intelligence uh, that's, that's going to come soon or whatever. But with the tools that you have right now, there's already making real economic impact just one month after the tools have been released. And um, so it's along those, along the lines of, uh, we have these new powerful tools and they've been given to the world. Uh, things you create from it belong to the creators. Uh, what's next? Nobody knows. And, and, and there are lots of low-hanging fruit out there for people who want to try to block from it. So, so, so <laughs> why are these tools so powerful right now? So it all began in the year 2017 in a paper known as Attention is All You Need. Um, that was the birth of the transformer. That is the underlying basis for GPT, for DALI, stable diffusion, and so on. Um, and, and do you want to just talk about what the transformer is? Not in technical mathematical terms, just in terms of what it is. The underlying structure of a transformer is trying to predict what is next in the original paper it is about trying to predict what's next in a sentence for example so it's like a dictionary that makes a prediction for what comes next in a sentence that's one example of what a transformer would look like and 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 that's just it it's it's just uh telling you what to pay attention to and what comes next in uh what what they think will come next in terms of the best output to give um and, and and this underlying structure is is what's part of both the text-based things and the image-based things. What what we can what we can think of is that uh, when you when you look at Dali, when you look at Stable Diffusion, a lot of the things inside it is is um, 
the replication of this same structure, right? Um, there are three parts to uh, stable diffusion, to any sort of this uh, text-to-image generator. There's going to be an encoder, which is, uh, which is just basically going from a really, really big image down to a really, really small representation of an image. And there's going to be a little uh, denoising uh, algorithm that, that basically just removes noise continually. And the third part is just a way to encode sentences and words into a mathematical representation. Those are the only three parts of any sort of like image generation uh, uh, powerful engine that you have. Um, and we can talk about what each one means, because right now they sound a bit mysterious, and they shouldn't be. Um, so let's talk about the middle bit. The, the meat of any sort of AI tool for image generation is uh, is the, this, the, this denoising uh, uh, algorithm, uh, this denoising model. Um, so what Google did with Imogen, it's a model known as Imogen, was... Um, they trained a model to remove noise from images. They introduced noise to images, and they told the model, try to optimize for the removal of noise. And at the end of it, they got a model that was really good at removing noise from even like pure noise into real images. So, so what? think of DALI as something, if given a seed of pure noise, is able to make it into something that is recognizable by humans as a real image. Um, so it's just a denoising algorithm. Uh, so far, so good. Great. So that's that's the imaginative part of, of DALI, of, of these image algorithms, right? You can give them a seed of pure noise, which has no layers of creativity. You can generate a bunch of them all the time. It, uh, just a noisy image, like in the static, uh, for, for those of you who were born before the 90s, uh, the television screens with the staticky things on it. And, and then out comes images recognizable by humans as something that's worthwhile and valuable. Um, that's the sort of like the denoising uh, uh, middle bit of it. This was great, except they were working on really small images because this is a very iterative process and images are really big. So if you want to make it like a 500 by 512 by 512 pixel image, that's like, I don't know, is it like 25,000, 250,000? I can't do mental math on the podcast. Uh, number of pixels, that's a lot. And you're going to iterate lots of times on it, and it's expensive. So uh, we don't like that, especially if you want gigantic, beautiful, big images, or even video. Oh, gosh, video. That, that The amount of inputs that you want for that. So we want to um, shrink all that input down to a space that we can traverse. And that's what the first thing comes in, the autoencoder or... Uh, uh, is just a way of making a really big image or really big input into something that's smaller. I like to think of it in terms of like a map. Um, if you're going to try to, say, triangulate something uh, on, on the world, on, on the earth, and then you try to use big ropes to try to triangulate the distance of something, that's going to be it would take a lot of effort. Instead, if you just shrink the world down to a map, the map needs to be, you know, a pretty informative representation of the world, be pretty accurate, have like, like the ratio of distances must be uh, correct and so on. But if you take a pencil and you just poke a hole in the map, if it's a sharp enough pencil, it's going to correspond exactly to just one hole on the Earth as well. And it'll be a lot easier to triangulate your location on a map versus trying to triangulate your location on the world at large. And, and so the, the autoencoder, the, uh, the VAE, does the same thing. It's a map of, of the image. It's going to get rid of all the features of an image that uh, it thinks is uh, not important 
So like filling up, uh, and then it's going to preserve all the things that are are important. Um, what that means in terms of human terms of what we can see is not something that it's very easy to talk about because it's it's going to be some representation that the machine understands the human that really doesn't. But you can think of it in terms of um, say if you have edges or you have particular patterns or, or lines or eyes or shapes of faces, those would be thought. Oh, that's important. We're going to make sure to preserve that in our representation in our map of things. Other things like like smooth surfaces, maybe they don't care. Um, and so. Uh, the first layer of this image generation uh, thing is just to squeeze everything down into a map that's easy tra to traverse with your pencil. The second thing is to uh, give a piece of, uh, is to get a machine that's able to turn noise into images that people like. Now, um, that's two parts. If you have those two parts, you can generate lots of like pretty images already, but they're going to be random. They're going to be like, I, they're just going to say, oh, give them random noise, you're going to generate something that looks intelligible. Uh, the, the magic is the last thing, which is just any text representation. Um, so, so GPT is a way of encoding sentences, English natural language sentences, uh, or other languages, in fact, now, uh, into, into a representation, a mathematical vector, into something that computers take in. It's just pure numbers. Um, and and uh, that is a semantic representation. It represents the meaning of the words. It represents like there's something there in, that says it's past tense. It's talking about a cat, and the cat's chasing a ball, so on. It's just the meaning of the words that's in a way that's it represented in a vector. And you're combining this vector with the denoiser. So you're training the denoiser to say, uh, not only do I want you to produce an image that is meaningful, that looks pretty. I want you to produce an image that approximates uh, this meaning. So uh, I'm currently giving, so to train this particular denoising uh, model, you give them an image of a cat chasing a ball. You give them the sentence, this is a picture of a cat chasing a ball. You push the sentence into the, uh, to the word encoder, into the word part, uh, into the, the t language encoder, and then you're going to noise up the image of the cat. Uh, with the ball and say this is a noisy image of a cat with a ball. Now denoise this and make sure that it is the image of a cat with a ball. And if you do this enough, you get a denoising algorithm that's able to denoise in a way that's biased towards what's represented in your words. So these are these three things and uh, produce. Uh, it's both stable diffusion and DALI 2, and now image and video. You're going to be making videos using this same exact sort of approach. And I don't want to go to, to talk about the technicalities of it, right? We're just going to think about it in terms of a game, right? Machines are very good at optimizing things. They're very good at finding the point is like, yeah, this is going to solve the game. This is going to be uh, the optimal point for for a solution for you. Um, you just need to give them the right question and we'll give you the answer for what is the optimal move to make. Um, before the 2017 Transformer paper, a lot of people were thinking of, in, of image generation in terms of GANs, known as Generative Adversarial Networks. And, that's, uh, and that is literally a game. You have two players in the game. One is a generative network that makes images and one is a discriminatory a network that discriminates whether uh, this image is generated or it's a real one. And so it's a game between these two players where the generative network is trying to make more and more realistic images to trick the discriminative network. And the discriminative network is trying to improve itself in order to make sure that it's able to distinguish between real and not real images. And at the end of this game, you just throw it a discriminative network and you have the generative network that's able to create 
images that look real to the discriminative network. The problem with that is that because it's a game, the computers are like, well, uh, we can just find the cheapest, easiest way to do this, which is um, we're going to do shortcuts and then I'm going to just settle on a place that looks weird to humans, but looks fine mm -hmm. to the discriminative network. Um, and so it's very unstable and, and it was also a very expensive process because you need to have two players and you need to iterate this game a lot of times. And so the introduction of this transformer plays the game, just changes the rules of the game. It says, well, let's not talk about trying to trick anyone. Let's just, we already know what nice images look like. We, the internet is full of them. Um, we're just going to try to uh, extract meaning out of noise. It's like, so you, you're given something that's noisy, try to make it more meaningful. And uh, just something that's a little bit uh, fuzzy, try to make it sharper, make, make it more beautiful. Uh, make it more uh, make it more intelligible as an image to humans, and at the very end of the, all the things, you give it pure noise and say, "Turn this into something that's intelligible," and 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 that is the creative process, right? You're just drawing uh, things that are meaningful out of the ether. That's the creative process, not just of computers. That's also the creative process of humans. You're just just thinking about random things and then you arrange into something that it's meaningful as a pattern, and 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 and, and so. We are using computers in terms of what they do best, playing this game to the very optimal point, and we are just uh, making sure that we are, we are doing it in the way that is the least expensive in terms of computation and uh, in a way that uh, would arrive at a result that would be meaningful to humans in a nuanced fashion. So, Brian, when I download the four gigs that allows me to run Stable Diffusion on my computer, what is in those four gigs? They are weights. So now um, the process of creating these weights can cost hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. You're not downloading any code. Uh, well, you are downloading code. You're not downloading the code for running Stable Diffusion, for training it. You're not creating your own Stable Diffusion. At the very end of all of these processes, at the end of it, you have this bunch of weights, which is the denoising algorithm, basically. Um, and, and that's it. You, it's this one layer of weights where you pass in a grid of noise, an image that's just pure noise, pass through these weights, and out comes an image. So, so this is it. This is the only thing you're downloading. You're downloading like a couple, I think, a few billion, 100 billion parameters that are just gonna and the and and these parameters are connected to words they are the there are two sets of it one one is connected to words the the word encoder thing is connected to words mm -hmm. the other one is connected to images um and they're combining gotcha. together saying anything you want to add on that um you are downloading kind of the distilled output of um, I guess millions of compute hours. That's right. Of um, of processing, uh, and this processing is a process of summarization, of taking um, existing mappings of images to words, and we're going to summarize that. And so here's the amazing thing, right? This hundreds of millions of hours of I not hundreds of well, this this extremely expensive thing to produce can fit into a. a a thumb drive of 4GB because the end result is just a bunch of numbers, basically. And it just so happens that this bunch of numbers works wonderfully in terms of producing images and so on. Um, it's, it's, it's the end result of any of these AI processes is always going to be a lot smaller and less complicated mm. than the whole process is. 
um, this is why stable diffusion was is an open source thing, right? Um, it, you're able to compete with OpenAI's uh, own backend engine because the ability to give to everyone, literally, and have them have stable diffusion on their computers is so cheap and so easy. Um, uh, the end result of, of, if you have the weight for the DALI OpenAI things, you are also open able to run DALI on your computer. The, the weight's a very small amount of data, and it's all that you need in order to actually uh, create anything based off the AI. So this is the difference between model and data. Um, so you can, this is something related to, um, you can think about the universe. The universe is very complex, but the laws of physics you can write it on a napkin, right? And, we, and that's the model for the universe. Um, all, the, the, the sum of all images and all image to word mappings is um, at least not, not a small one. You can probably fill a few libraries with it. But uh, the distillation of that knowledge is very small. There's not that much information in the world that, um, that is fundamental. And, and I think the process of making these algorithms is to, is to elucidate the, the, the fundamental. Um, and then the rest is just details. Let's talk a little bit about GPT-3 and, and word algorithms. Uh, what's, what's different and similar between what Dolly and Stable Diffusion are doing to what GP3, uh, how GP3 they, is made and works. They have fundamentally, the, the building block of the architecture is the same, right? It's, um, you have this uh, transformer. You have, what, what the, the main question that you pose to a transformer is, um, what's important, what comes next? So you give them data and you, uh, and you ask them what's important in terms of this input and what comes next? What's the best next output for this input? Um, and they fundamentally have sort of the same underlying structures. This was this was true even in the past uh, um, in in terms of like many of the models that were trained for whether it's text or speech or images. They were neural networks. There were some different things. You know, you introduce recurrent networks, you introduce some things in it. But the fundamental sort of mathematics you perform is going to be roughly the same. Um, and this is the reason why you're able to combine the text encoding into the image encoding as well, right? It's uh, the, the representation is it's just a representation of meaning. It's a representation of numbers. You put them together. It so happens that uh, one of them is plugged into an output with like an R, like a, a, an RGB like number of pixels that's like a thousand by thousand pixels or something. Well, the other one's encoded in terms of a a, a word uh, like a list of words, like a list of all the words in the English language or the French language or whatever language. So the input and the output has these like little uh, these vectors that one says it's color in this image, the other uh, in this pixel, and the other is this is the the uh, which word this is in the list of words um, that we have. So, but the, the, the structure, I want to, to emphasize that the structure of, of the architectures are, are fundamentally the same. You have to tweak things so that one works better for words and one works better for images, but they're not, they're not as different as you think in terms of like your eyes and your ears. They're very different structures because one's receiving like images and one's receiving like sounds. Um, that's not true for, for, uh, uh, a, a uh, the, for Dali and for GPT. I would also add that uh, the reason why everything is used in the transformer is because the transformer somehow um, gets us closer to a a more optimal summarization method for for information. So um, before we had neural networks that uh, were 
uh, what, what we're called fully connected or locally connected. Um, so basically, the information you pass, you see, you have this different. You pass on different layers of information through this um, machine learning network, and each layer sort of captures different um, features of different granularity. Um, so in a in a in a language setting, you might have uh, the largest granularity is like sentence structure, um, and 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 uh, and like semantic, uh, yeah, and then the smallest granularity might be like. Um, individual words or individual sub words or even, even individual letters on an image you know the largest granularity are like macro features like um, you know shapes and and um, relations between shapes and then the smallest granularity might be uh, minute colorings minute like um, margins and stuff like that um, the the issue with um, you know having everything connected to everything else so so basically neural networks kind of learn this uh, on a stepwise basis now the the issue is that it's it's actually like a lot of information you don't you don't really know what information to pass from one layer to the next like if we have a bunch of like small features like um like like lines and edges you know what 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 parts of that information is salient to pass it on to the to the kind of part that understands shapes it's 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 not it, it's kind of like you have to figure out what it's, what information is important and uh transformers are basically um they do this via mechanism called attention and attention is basically a um, a little mathematical gate that first computes the importance and then passes the important things to the next level. So basically, it just figures out what's important, and at each level, um, the important things are being passed out to the next level in a very efficient manner. Um, and so it's kind of like the the best way to do this because it's the entire thing is only built from attention. It's like it's just constantly computing like. Uh, Here's our input features. What's important? Pass it on. What's important? Pass it on. What's important? Pass it on. And at the end, you had a very, very succinct um, representation that that basically summarizes literally everything that every layer has determined is important from the input features. And uh, the the other reason why uh, it's so powerful is that um, this importance calculation is simply like a multiplication. It's it's taking two matrices, two grids of numbers, and multiplying them together. That um, is extremely easy in, in like a GPU or like you take any compute optimized um, machine and uh, you can do that super quickly and it's just a bunch of these chained together and so um, you can have these massive networks you can have like many many um, you know you can have tens hundreds of layers of just computing importance and that's why you get such good summarizations like that's how you can get the super minute like I can generate a cat riding a unicorn or something because um, somewhere within these hundreds of layers it has understood what is a cat, what is a unicorn, and what are all the minute details. Like not 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 every detail. Not, it doesn't summarize every single cat. It summarizes the important aspects of what makes a cat a cat, and and somewhere in those layers, it has done that. And because it's so efficient, it can be really accurate. Because if you have a large network that's not efficient, then you have really bad outputs because um, it's kind of trying to do too much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Where next? Where next? Well, that's a good question. Um, we are running out of data. <laughs> we are genuinely running out of data. We have uh, a lot of the data that's publicly available is being used for image, images and text. Where next, I think, would be video. We have a lot of video data that is not uh, and we and so and only just last month, image and video from Google came out where we were able to generate video outputs. They're okay, they're fine. They're not. They are. They're, they're amazing, actually. I should be. I should be slapping myself. Imogen came out in May, and Imogen video came out in October. Um, uh, we should be like, wow. But but reality is that there's a lot of room for improvement. But there are like hours of videos on YouTube, on TikTok, on whatever, and then we can just feed them all in, and then we can make something that generates videos as well. I think that's where it's next because that's where a lot of our data is. Where's next in terms of? Uh, images in terms of text in terms of everything else um i don't know because we are rate limited by data these things are really expensive in terms of the amount of data they need um and uh if we are able to find ways of finding more images and finding more generating more text that's great but the unfortunate thing is that for the most part images and text right now are being done by humans even with the phones being ubiquitous still not enough these these are very very greedy models that need more data um i am previously working in materials optimization. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of room there, but it's not going to be using uh, deep learning. It's not going to be like you plug in, uh, I want a material or that is uh, that's, that survives in the surface of the sun and it out pops. Here you go. Here's the formulation. Here's how you make it. That's never going to happen because we don't have enough data for that. Uh, but, uh, but, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of... Uh, uh, small data in terms of uh, creating models that are efficient with small data sets. Um, and maybe the efficiency gains from those can also be transferred to uh, deep learning for things like uh, uh, DALI, for things like GPT, so that they need, they're, they're a bit less spendthrift in terms of the data that they need, because we, as I said, we are running out of data. So yeah, Brian, let's, let's, let's go a few levels deeper on that. So how does, how would this apply to material science? Great. So materials are expensive and experiments for materials are super expensive. You have to have a lab technician mixing things together and then measuring the result of it. And so what a lot of startups and a lot of labs are doing right now is trying to find out how to squeeze as much information as you can out of experiments and out of observational data and out of what we know about how molecules and atoms work. We have all this information. They're all published in papers everywhere and they're not gathered in the same place. And even like uh, all the data that's made by these large materials companies, these chemicals companies, they're all... Um, they're all put in Excel sheets. They're never going to be coordinated. And the only people looking at it are humans. They're not machines. And so mm -hmm. um, the idea and that's being, uh, is to reduce, is to combine all this information in a way that's located in the same place and giving it to something that is able to make predictions based off the data. Let's give you one example. Um, uh, let's talk about Mitrachem, which is a company that's based out of California. Um, 
So the next big thing when the Inflation Reduction Act and everything else is uh, making uh, EVs, electric electrical vehicles, and you need to make a lot of batteries for that. Batteries are getting more and more expensive because lithium and everything else is getting more expensive. So you want to make sure that the batteries are efficient, they are uh, able to be run over a very long lifetime and so on. But if you think about how you test battery lifetimes, the way you do it is that you take a battery and then you charge it and then you discharge it and you do that 10,000, like a thousand times, and that's going to take a long time, and that's going to be really expensive mm -hmm. because you, you're, you're going to do this. So one composition of the battery, okay, that's fine. Now we're going to test a thousand more compositions of it, and we're going to test them all like 20 times just to make sure because we can't just base everything off one battery. And so that's an extremely expensive way of um, uh, trying to find out what's optimal in terms of your battery composition. And then once that's done, you find a, your perfect battery, then you can finally give it to all the EVs and then uh, you, every car under is gonna be an EV. So that's that's gonna be great. Even just 1% of savings is gonna be like massive, massive in terms of the cost, in terms of the efficiency. But the experiments that you need to go to, it's just really expensive and takes a long time. Now, this is not as exciting as the GPT stuff and the uh, DALI stuff, but you're able to use methods to save, think of think of machine learning as a way of saving information from data, of gathering what's important in the data and and, and using it to the best, uh, uh, using to, it to the, uh, in a way to, to that, that saves, that, that gathers all the signals out of the noise. Uh, uh, so it, it, in terms of the experiments, you have all the data, you're measuring it, you're measuring the voltage and so on and so forth. You're measuring how much it heats up and and you're putting all that data into some into probably a Bayesian model, or uh, and Bayesian is just a statistical approach of things. We don't have to talk about the maths, just in case we don't want you to lose any listeners. Uh, so you're putting it into a model and gonna ask the model, uh, right? Um, can you use all these other uh, data that humans don't really know how to interpret and try to predict using this in terms of um, what's going to work and what's not going to? So a lot of the times machines are very good at predicting what's not going to work. They're going to look at this like, oh, this little fluctuation in voltage in the beginning, in the first 10 cycles of the of the battery cycling here means it's going to fail a thousand cycles later. Just throw it out. Don't, don't bother with it. Get rid of it. We're going to move on. So that that's a time saving, right? So if you're able to tell in the beginning of your experiments what's not going to work at the end of it, then you can just throw it out and get a new one. And that's going to be a big sure. time saving. Um, and, and so that's one of the ways that it, it works out. Think of this in terms of the informational supply chain, right? You are able to uh, create uh, optimizations of, of these batteries, of these materials really early on, really quickly, really cheaply. You're going to plug it into the factories. They're going to make like tons and tons of these batteries and they're all going to go onto the roads. And so these are the knock-on effects. So even though the models are really small, even though the models aren't as exciting as generating um, frogs on a unicycle in a tutu uh, like you can with, um, we might see that, you can put that as the image for this podcast. Um, they're going to have really big impacts on the, on the economy in terms of the industries. And, uh, and I think that's what's next in terms of machine learning. In terms of deep learning, I think what's next is video. So that, though you have your two answers. Brian, how else is the development of AI going to potentially speed up R&D? That's a, that's a <clears throat> big question. Well, R&D has, there, there are two ways that people have been trying for a long time to do this. One is modeling the stuff themselves. And I say stuff because it's very general. You have things like AlphaFold is modeling 
proteins, and you have things like mitar stuff, which is modeling materials, um, and you have uh, so-called density uh, functional uh, DFT uh, 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 predictors that just predict like little atoms that can predict, like say, if your nuclear reactor is going to fail at this temperature. Um, and, and so it's a uh, it's a uh, these are stuff that has been going on for the last thirty, forty years already. And now we have, but computers have improved dramatically. Our AI capabilities have improved dramatically. And so the idea is that we can plug in these models that we already have from computers into some AI model and some machine learning model. And out comes um, better abilities to make predictions about how things will behave, even without experiments. That's great. Uh, if, you, if you're able to predict the properties of stuff, like whether it's materials or proteins or drugs, without expending anything uh, in terms of uh, experiments, um, that would be perfect because then you can have AI play games of itself in order to develop something that uh, we wouldn't even be able to dream of uh, 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 looking for. The same way that um, a human artist would take a long time in order to think of, to conceptualize an image that's uh, so out of this world that uh, uh, Dali is able to produce, um, we are going to save the hum the effort of uh, R and D scientists in developing something that mm, that uh, 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 out of the way solution. Uh, Brian, uh, how do you like my startup idea for um, making GPT three for grant writing? Is that too small bore? So I'm not in academia or policy, so I I kind of appreciate that, but. Uh, that, that that's actually one of the big things as well. Uh, there are companies that are using AI or using automation to take advantage of bureaucracies because bureaucracies are massive, and the and the main barrier to 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 them is human time. You if you ever want to write to the IRS, you can. There are lots of things you can do to appeal uh, like offenses and taxes and and so on and so forth. Uh, but they take a lot of paperwork. If you can fill up that paperwork, which is mostly quite like well structured with with AI, then you win. You you are able to beat the bureaucracy at your own game because usually you think of one tiny human versus this gigantic bureaucratic machine with all the mountains of paperwork you have to search through. If the human is armed with something that's that's automatic, that's AI based, then uh, then you suddenly the individual is bigger than the bureaucracy and can and just a bunch of individuals can completely overwhelm the bureaucracy. That's one of the value propositions of one startup that's uh, actually, I think, founded by someone from my class at Stanford uh, called Do Not Pay, which is trying to appeal things like traffic tickets and so on, uh, automatically using forms that have automatically filled out. Um, so I think your idea is amazing, Jordan. If you have a list of all the places that gives out grants and you have a little machine that just you click one button and it feels like a mail merge, but it fills out your grants completely with yeah. like essays of about your what you're going to do. Um, you will overwhelm every single grant committee in this country and, and the world forever. Uh, and, oh, and I mean, the- I was, I was, I, it wasn't as nefarious as that, Brian. It was more like I'm a poor biochemist who's just trying to like fund his lab. Um, but I, I think there's a, I think there's a, the, a bigger point here is that like, is that like the sort of established institutions are not ready for what's about to hit them on, you know, many, many different dimensions. That's right. Everything so, from a seventh grade teacher who all of a sudden is going to have perfectly well-written, you know, essays from their students to, um, uh, I don't know, a news ecosystem that's about to have, you know, completely deep faked video, which the whole world can do without, knowing how to, you know, uh, you know, knowing right. how, without, without someone knowing how to code. 
you have stable diffusion on your on your computer, Jordan. You, if you put your face into it, or in fact, I think there are some apps online for it. You can like generate photographs, like slightly blurry, yeah. a little bit weirdly wonky photographs of I don't know uh, yourself uh, in in some compromising positions yeah. or in some like uh, uh, in in some weird uh, things that incriminating positions as well. So it's it's this sort of thing that is um, gonna it, uh, people just haven't done it yet. At least they have seen, but they can do it very easily. And uh, yeah. and let's just say that in terms of disinformation and and influence, um, even without these images, it's been a problem. <laughs> and so, with these images, then uh, how how do you fight against that? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a policymaker. But but uh, you're right. Uh, institutions from from uh, primary school teachers all the way to government officials, they're not sure. What's going on? I have a funny story. I was working in uh, Taiwan in 2017. That was back. Uh, there was one month after uh, uh, Deep Fakes was op- uh, released in open source, and I was working in the think tank, and I was doing there for machine learning things and so on. And so for the fun of it, I I did uh, a, a deep. Uh, uh, I think I I did a deep fake for I can't remember who it was. It was for a Taiwanese politician. And I showed it for them. It was very bad in quality because at the time it was 2017, and I didn't want to spend too much of my Google Cloud credits to train it. But it was able to basically use the face, train the face of a Taiwanese politician onto a, a video of uh, some old classic like Hong Kong film. And he looked at me and like, isn't this going to be a problem in the future? And I was like, I don't know. It just it just looks fun to me <laughs> for now. Uh, uh, and and I think it might be a problem, especially if uh, we are overestimating how many layers of verification and trust that we have in terms of institutions and and uh we're underestimating how good these things are or Absolutely. how good these things need to be <laughs> so yeah. uh, the, the other interesting dynamic is like the the centralized versus decentralized nature of how these tools are going to develop because right now you know on 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 some of the 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 bigger the bigger batter models like that um open ai is putting out they have um, you know, you can't put in racist slurs. You can't put in, very interestingly, anything sort of like CCP related um, uh, and sort of like a whole host of just, you know, moderately sensitive things are not um, allowed. But, you know, you download Stable Diffusion, all of a sudden this is open source software, no restrictions. You can put um, you can put whatever the hell you want. Um, and if the sort of tech ends up evolving such that the open source solutions are almost as good as what um what the large firms can put out um that the the ability for there to be some sort of like i don't know channeled that like this this you know my, my sense is that like this energy is going to be channeled and this tech is going to be channeled in very chaotic and disruptive ways whereas if it was if it ended up being a more centralized thing then you would you would probably see um i don't know less less disruptive uh change curious for uh you know thoughts reflections on that uh dynamic brian or saying let me let me be clear about this there is no centralization right now because yeah uh there's been a big culture of this the reason why it's called open ai right a lot of the papers published they'll give you the full architecture so if you had enough compute if you had a million dollars to spend on aws credits then you can do it too uh um um and remember what we said before, that the end result of all this uh, machine learning training is going to be just a bunch of numbers that you can put in a thumb drive. You can you can send it in, in, a, in, in an email, really. <laughs> um, so it's a genie in a bottle. 
And I fundamentally do not believe in the ability to keep genies in their bottles. Uh, um, if 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 stable di- so stable diffusion is something that's like basically uh, you can if all these big companies say clamp down and say no we don't want to release this a bunch of tech people well paid tech people can say we're gonna give a thousand dollars each we're gonna have a thousand people do it we're gonna run it in, in GPUs and we're gonna make something as good and and there's nothing you can do about it and we're gonna release it to the world and everyone not just in America but in in India in Nigeria wherever is it are will be free to use this tool. Um, then that's a genie in the bottle. Once that's out, what do you do about that? You you can't take back information. You can't make people unlearn this information. Um, and and this this is the fundamental part of the technology. This isn't something that you can solve. The only way you can solve this is by like getting rid of all images from the internet, or getting rid of all text from the yeah. internet. It's gonna. It is there. And a fundamental feature of this technology is that anyone can do it. And the end result of it is easy to smuggle anywhere. So, so uh, if you want to fight against that, I think it's a fight against entropy. <laughs> Let's talk about Singapore. All right, two minutes on Singapore. Okay, how's Singapore doing nowadays? Singapore is doing amazing in terms of the tech they're doing. I just had a dinner with a bunch of people from the Open Government Projects in Singapore uh, who came to to the TechCrunch Connect, uh, a TechCrunch Disrupt, I think. Uh, here in San Francisco, and they're doing amazing work. So this is a group of people hired by the Singapore government building open source projects that are serving government needs. These are open source, which means that anyone in the world can look at the code and, in fact, they can use it. So any government that yeah. can't afford an expensive team of, of six-figure software engineers, they can just take the code and just go in along with the government of Alberta, whoever. Um, and, and so they are building products for things like... Uh, uh, tracing uh, 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 like scam calls for for building forms for government authentication of uh, vouchers and re- redemption of vouchers. So all these things that sound boring but are part of the essential work of government and it like uses like millions of dollars of resources for a country like Singapore already and goodness knows how much for a country like the United States and um, and 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 just using this technology saves them so much money and so much resource and makes uh, everything efficient. Um, I have two friends. Uh, one friend was the lead engineer uh, for Trace Together, which is this app that was the contact tracing app that came out in March of 2020. So basically when yeah. everyone was still like, what do we do? And then the Singapore uh, government just said, look, we have a contact tracing app. We wrote it already. Just download it. And and the other one was SingPass, which is this one-stop app that I am able to access. If I, need, if I had tax forms, I can just go to this one app uh, if I wanted to. Uh, access things like gift redemption vouchers that the government gives for some reason. I can access it here in San Francisco from my one app uh, uh, on my phone, and 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 it, there's so much brilliant technology that's going on uh, for any sort of country to, that they want to use. And and I I really do hope that you know San Francisco, California, and the United States actually takes advantage of the fact that you have so many wonderful people that are able to build these products that uh, the government's able to use. Uh, and, and, and I'm just so excited for the fact that my country is uh, taking advantage of the talent and technology and, and, and moving things forward in terms of building a, 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 a system of technology-driven governance. Um, any, any final reflections on like how AI is going to change the world? I think it's uh, so. Let's put things into perspective, right? Uh, 
image generation Imogen came out in May. The optimization for it, the one that said, let's instead of doing just pure images, let's put it all in, in a map, came out in October. And we had two products come out in October alone. And uh, right after that, a month or two later, uh, in, in September, October, I can't remember, in September. Uh, and in October, uh, video came out, video generation came out. This isn't all in six months, okay? It's just foom. It's just really fast. Uh, I don't know what's coming next. Uh, I And even if I we knew what's coming next, I don't know what the implications for it are. If you ask people at OpenAI at wherever and ask them, what's the implication of this model? Um, I don't think we are able to predict it. It's just, it's um, you're introducing something that's really different, really empowering to a lot of people. And uh, the results are going to be as unpredictable as people are unpredictable. And we're going to be surprised. Brian, you got a song for us to close on? Um, you can close on a, on a, on a, since this is China talk, we can close on like Landlord's Cat. Uh, it's a nice, quiet song from Landlord's Cat for people to, to contemplate the future of AI on. Okay. Brian, Zane, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you so much for having us. Pleasure. Sing 
说所有的酒。